Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In the history of mankind, some 600 people have traveled into space. But our guest today is not just one of those 600. Colonel Douglas Wheelock spent 178 days in space on the space shuttle, the Russian Soyuz, and he was commander of the International Space Station. Colonel Wheelock walked in space seven times and was the first person to check in from space using the social networking application Foursquare. Our guest today, Colonel Douglas Wheelock, NASA astronaut and commander of the International Space Station. Colonel Wheelock, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Scott. Great to be back in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Do you think about that often, though? Only 600 people in the history of mankind? I do think about that. It's, 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 quite, a, uh, it's quite a feeling to be able to see our planet uh, from outer space, and I know uh, the the novelty of it and, and the uh, how special it is isn't lost on me. So it's a, it's a great experience. Well, we're going to talk about some of the special experiences. But as I was thinking about this today, I'm thinking there are hundreds of questions that uh, I could come up with, and Central Pennsylvania has for an astronaut, just not just an astronaut, but a commander of the International Space Station. So I got to thinking about it. I was thinking, okay, I know when you travel around the country or around the world, then people find out what you do, what you are, that they probably have a lot of questions. So I'm curious, what question are you asked most often? Actually, most often uh, people ask me, what does it feel like? What is it like physiologically in space? And what does it feel like emotionally when I'm up there? They, I don't think they really know what they want to ask. But uh, they ask, "What does it feel like?" And so, so what does it feel so, like? So, so it's, uh, it's it, which leads to other questions that's like, right. "How to use the bathroom <laughs> in space?" Which I'm is sure, the, kids, which, that's one which, of the first questions which is they the ask. Second most asked question, <laughs> but certainly it's, um, it's a sensation where everything is floating, and so you have to be. It's it's euphoric. It can be euphoric at times. It can be very messy at times, and so you have to realize that everything is floating around you, including the food that you're trying to eat or maybe whatever it is you're drinking out of a, out of a straw is floating as well, as well as your tools and, uh, and things like that that you're using to repair things. So you have to be very careful about uh, being organized and co- sort of self-care and care for each other on the space station as well. So, yeah, But it's a great feeling to, to be able to literally turn off the gravity switch and just float around. It's a really a euphoric feeling. Is there anything on Earth that compares to it? I haven't found anything. <laughs> I, I, this, I suppose flying or maybe riding on a roller coaster where you get a little bit of uh, a feeling of uh, uh, weightlessness is, uh, is pretty cool. But... Um, but the feeling of floating in space, I haven't been able to find anything uh, like that physiologically on, on the on the planet. So obviously, you went through a lot of training, and uh, weightlessness was part of that. But anything that surprised you when you were in space for the first time? Um, one of the stark things that uh, I began to realize, you realize very quickly, is that um, you're sort of on borrowed time time out there. You know, everything is. Uh, you look down at the planet, and you see our thin atmosphere where all the air we breathe is inside of that atmosphere. And it looks like the thickness of the skin on an apple. You know, it's very, very uh, small and very thin in comparison to the... And we're not there. And so we're out in the vacuum of space. And so you realize that every breath you take, um, every uh, bit of water that you drink is all uh, kind of borrowed and recycled and things like that. And so... So you begin to realize it's a beautiful vantage point to see the planet, 
but it's also very dangerous. If you have a question, I'm sure there are a lot of questions out there. If you have a question for Colonel Wheelock, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. I'm going to talk about why social media and Colonel Douglas Wheelock kind of go hand in hand. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. I'm just curious when... You're circling the Earth when you're in orbit. Are you looking out the left side or the right side? And I have a reason for asking this question. Okay. Well, uh, most of our windows on the space station, we have them throughout the space station. But we we also have the cupola uh, windows. They actually have seven windows in the cupola. Most of them face the Earth, and we're in low Earth orbit. And so we're actually pretty close to the Earth relationship-wise to deep space. Uh, but um, most of the windows uh, face down, or we, set, we call it nadir in space, toward the Earth. We do a lot of Earth observation and things like that, but we also have radial windows that look out in all directions out into the cosmos as well. All right. Well, that was my next question. Uh, whether it's looking from the, I don't know, do you use starboard? Uh, we do. We area? have starboard port, uh, you know, forward okay. and aft uh, sections of the space station. So you look to the Earth and you see the Earth. But then you turn your head and you look out into space. Describe that. So it's a a pretty profound uh, experience to be able to see that because then you can can now see Earth hanging in a balance. And, uh, you know, we we live our lives on Earth really in two dimension. We, We don't really see the curvature of the Earth. We don't really see ourselves as a as a spaceship, you know, orbiting the sun. And um, and we, when you see this from this vantage point, you begin to realize that Earth is like an oasis, a very fragile oasis that is an explosion of color in a vast and endless sea of darkness. And it's, it's a pretty striking uh, experience to see that. Uh, you then, um, you know, we kid that we... We can't see borders from space. And when I looked at the states um, from upstate New York originally, and my folks are actually from Scranton area, so I would look to see, make sure I can pick out the Finger Lakes and everything. But but it actually strikes you. It's like, where are all the borders? You don't see the lines on the map, you know, that we usually are used to seeing. But then at night, this explosion of color uh, when we go into darkness on the eclipse side of the Earth, the Earth comes alive with fire. It looks like with the aurora, with lightning strikes and things like that, and with city lights, it looks like a mosaic of of light and motion. And um, then you can begin to see the borders. You can see that we flock to the to the shorelines. We, we uh, live along rivers. Uh, one of the most striking images I took... Uh, from space was the Nile River coming up through the Sahara Desert. And it looks like a, a lighted, like a snake almost, coming through like a, a large patch of darkness. And you can see how we flock to the water as well. So our li- really our lifeblood on Earth as well. I saw that photograph, or actually two photographs, as you had one from uh, the daytime when the sun was shining on Egypt and the Nile River, and then one at night where you're right, you really do see the lights gathered along the, the, the Nile River. Right. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, I, I, as I said, questions are popping 
into my head. Do you, do you have a other than looking at the Finger, Finger Lakes? Uh, is there a favorite city or place that you like to look at when you're in space? Oh gosh, and I took several images that I'll show tonight as well. But uh, taking an image of the pyramids in Egypt, um, the Taj Mahal. I took a photo of the Taj Mahal. Um, mountain ranges, Mount Everest. Uh, I took a, some great photos of Mount Everest and islands and island chains and things like this. Um, it's just amazing to see what's striking is the inner is the interplay of our planet. You begin to realize that we're we're all in this together, kind of thing. So you can see the the patterns of the of the shorelines. You can see. You can see where we've ravaged the land. Like one of the really stark images I took was of a Madag the island of Madagascar, and um, I saw how I'd read stories about how we uh, some deforestation on the middle part of the island, and then you can see uh, the choking of the rivers with the mud and things that were where the land was washing away. And so you can begin to see the effect of fire on and forest forest and things like that. So it's it's really interesting to see the uh, the flow patterns in the water and also the uh, the the wind as well. So, You mentioned tonight uh, Colonel Willock will be honored tonight at the Salvation Army Harrisburg's uh, 2016 annual civic event that's being held at the Radisson Hotel in Camp Hill. So just wanted to mention that. And uh, since Ann Gallagher is here, can, can the public uh, participate in that? Yes, there's still uh, limited tickets available at 630 at the Radisson. And uh, it truly is going to be an inspiration. We're going to have, uh, it's a family event, so children and moms and dads, all the young people who ever dreamed of being an astronaut uh, will surely uh, be pleased to hear uh, Colonel Wheelock's story. And anyone can follow along the Twitter conversation. We've been live tweeting, so that hashtag is TSA, we have liftoff. We thought that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Your opportunity to talk to the commander of, uh, former commander, I, I, of course, you're always known as commander okay. of the International Space Station, uh, Colonel Douglas Wheelock. And uh, let's take a phone call from Rodney in Newville. Rodney, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, I hate to bring science fiction into this, but in the film 2001, they created artificial gravity via centrifugal means. I was wondering if that would ever be a, a viable uh, possibility. That's all. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Great, uh, great question, uh, question, Rodney. Thank you for that. Um, we actually do use centrifugal force to uh, – we have uh, centrifuges on board the space station. Uh, we also spin our rockets when we when we launched the Apollo missions to the moon. We spun them to give them stability as well. And so we are looking at ways to be able to create just – even if it's just a microgravity – uh, just a little bit of gravity to be able to condition, keep the body conditioned and things as we're en route to uh, into somewhere, some distant uh, deep space um, uh, destination. So, yes, we are looking at that. We are looking at ways to use uh, artificial uh, gravity through the use of centrifugal force um, on, a, on a spaceship as well as we make these distant journeys.
You know, Rodney said, I hate to bring up science fiction. I don't think you <laughs> probably a, hear, don't because a lot of what was science fiction years ago is no longer science fiction. For example, maybe you could give us some examples. Well, it's uh, it's, it's amazing because that's, that's really NASA's story. And, and I want to first say that NASA belongs to you, the American taxpayer. We we are your agency to uh, to really take a set spark to innovative ideas and make them revolutionary breakthroughs and other maybe in even uh, other areas of science. And so we just take we we cross uh, crisscross the country looking for young innovators with great ideas. We light a spark to those things, ignite them, and make them revolutionary. One one of the greatest examples is the Hubble Space Telescope. We've all seen these just incredible images from Hubble. But you know, do you know that we, when we launched Hubble, those first images came back blurry? I remember that, and yeah. And so, so I was like, what happened? Did something happen to the mirror? Was there something we de- calculated incorrectly? We had young scientists and mathematicians, actually, that said, like, hey, wait a second. Just like in a digital image, all the data are there. Everything's there. It's just blurry. So why don't you give me that data... And I'll, I'll write a string of algorithms to, to just tighten that image and make everything sharp and clear. And that's exactly what happened. We had young engineers and scientists that developed this, essentially a black box with algorithms in it. We took it up, plugged it into the side of the Hubble, and voila, we have, we have these ma- magnificent images of deep space coming back from Hubble. And we had people in the medical field say, hey, wait a second. You could take a blurry image and make it clear. I need that technology. And it became a revolutionary breakthrough in the in our next, gen, next generation of MRI machines. You know, well, see, there's a good example. I'm going to talk about some others. But I do remember when Hubble first became operable and it wasn't operating properly. And that was just a few years after Challenger disaster. And at the time, it was kind of a dark time for NASA at that point because there were a lot of people saying, well, can't we do it? Why can't we do, uh, why don't we have the successes of the Apollo program? We have the Challenger disaster. Now we have the Hubble. But then when the Hubble was repaired and they, it was figured out, we kind of take it for granted. It's like, oh, just a beautiful look at this this image from Hubble or some of the other telescopes now. Well, that's the beauty that we're of this journey that we're on together as Americans uh, in our work in space, our research in space. Is we we don't know what we don't know yet, and so until we push those the limits of what we know and understand in engineering and technology, it's then when we begin to see the breakthroughs. And uh, you know, like I mentioned before, just an innovative idea in one area of science can become revolutionary in another area of science, and that's that's the magic of spaceflight. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're honored to have our guest today, Colonel Douglas Wheelock, NASA astronaut and commander of the International Space Station. Your opportunity to talk with the real live astronaut, commander of the space station, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 
1-800-729-7532. Manuel and Carlisle has a couple questions. Uh, does your guest think we will ever get to the point that a space elevator will be built? And at what point does the commander believe that we need a space trash collection service? <laughs> uh, we may need the space trash collection service now, but uh, an elevator, um, it, it's hard to to realize uh, if that will eventually become reality. And I know there's some folks looking at that. They're also looking at tethered balloons and things like this. And so these might be ways that we can have access to, to near space. And uh, I don't know um, if, uh, if we'll ever have a space elevator, but uh, it's certainly an incredible concept that helps us discover new things about our atmosphere as well. And so, so in the process of uh, folks looking at that technology, we're discovering uh, greater things about our, our uh, atmosphere as well. And, um, and so space trash, it's kind of interesting. We do have a lot of trash on board the space station. And right now we use our, our resupply uh, ships uh, that bring us new supplies. We, we take those new supplies, bring them on board, and we pack it with tra pack that capsule with trash. And it undocks and then burns up in the atmosphere. So right now, we burn up our uh, our, our uh, trash becomes a falling star. So uh, when you see the, that burn up in the atmosphere, it. Uh, that's how we dispose of our trash now. But there is some space junk, I think, is That's maybe, what maybe I where the caller is getting yeah. to. But uh, the space junk is uh, can be a real problem. I mean, we, we try to track as much of that as possible as we can. Um, but there are some larger pieces that we can we can take avoiding avoidance maneuvers. If you've seen the movie Gravity, of course, we don't want that scenario uh, to happen to the space station. So we do track what we can see. And um, and we just kind of hope for the best of the things we don't see. And so, uh, but we do have some sort of uh, just particle size uh, uh, trash that's up there and of old rocket bodies and satellites and things that have that have uh, that are no longer in service that are floating around up there as well. So those particle sized items, <clears throat> what would happen if you ran into one? That would be a kind of a bad day, and that's something we actually <laughs> practiced for. We were um, uh, we were talking earlier about the emergencies that we the three big emergencies on the space station that we train for and we simulate. We try to simulate as best we can. Is uh, first thing when the alarm goes off is we were trained. Am I on fire? So you look around. Is there any fire or smoke that you see? Because a fire on board a spaceship uh, spaceship can be a very bad day. The next thing are my ears popping. Is there a rapid decompression of some sort? Did we get impacted by a particle or something that maybe tore a hole in the hull? And your ears are a very, very sensitive um, pressure meter. So, so you can actually feel a, a rapid decompression first with your ears before your alarm system on the space station. And then is there the third, is, is there a toxic release into the atmosphere? All, all this air that we're breathing up there is recycled air and um, and so do we have a toxic release of, of uh, some sort of toxic into the atmosphere so am I on fire are my ears popping can I breathe and those are the three big ones on the space station we'll talk more about that but do we have a phone call from Curtis and Carlisle Curtis you're on the air hi how you doing Scott Good. I'm doing well uh, commander I just want to say thank you uh, you had mentioned how it belongs to the people and the taxpayers and I just want to thank you for being a part of that uh, fantastic endeavor. The furtherment of science is very important to me. Um, I had a question. Uh, again, I'm talking about movies, but in Apollo 13, I was noticing that when they were having trouble, uh, that one of their problems was that they were getting so cold, which obviously makes sense. It's cold in space. But one of the things I was thinking of 
is there's so little matter and so little mass in space, why wouldn't the problem be excess heat? Since there's nowhere for the heat to transfer to outside of the, outside of the spacecraft. Great question, Curtis. Thank you for that. Um, I was alarmed. One of the things we mentioned earlier was the, the most striking thing to me when you're outside, I've been outside on a spacewalk, when you're directly, uh, directly facing the sun, uh, the temperature can be about 300 degrees Fahrenheit in, in the direct ambient sun. And then when you go into eclipse, when you're actually in shadow, it's 300 degrees below zero. So it's, it's this rapid, and we get, we're orbiting the Earth once every 90 minutes in, in the space station. And so every 45 minutes, we either get a sunrise or a sunset. So half of your spacewalk is in darkness, and it could get very, very cold. And um, so cold that it's, it's just, and inside of our suits, the only heating we have, the only heating we have is, uh, is our body heat. And so it's easy, it's easy to um, cool things down with the technology we have. It's a lot harder to heat things up. And so, so we, we don't worry when we're out doing a spacewalk. Uh, when we go into, uh, into direct sunlight, we have water cooled. Uh, our body is covered with um, this tubing that water flows through. So we just turn our cooling up. But when you get cold, there's no way to get warm, and it's it can be very frightening. And so in those deep space images, when you're pointed and radiating all your heat to deep space, it does radiate. It's more like sublimes, like a uh, uh, there's the act of sublimation. So mm-hmm. heat actually radiates to deep space, and so so you're and it's so cold that it's that you can't retain heat inside the capsule. So it's uh, it can get very very cold. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, thank you very thank much, you very Rick. Much. Mm-hmm. That may surprise some people that you can feel heat and you can feel cold through the spacesuit. Yes, and um, I was alarmed at first when I and, and actually the radiative heat as well uh, that's radiated or reflected off of a shiny surface, which is the outside of the space station, is a metallic surface. And what I didn't know also, there's a little bit of a boundary layer there. I'm, I'm, I remember on my first spacewalk, I was trying to balance myself and counteract force. You're just kind of floating there, so you have no force. And so I was, I was putting. I was putting a foot restraint in, and so I needed to balance myself. So I slid my hand underneath a handrail in the direct sunlight, and I didn't, in a, against a reflective surface. And in that boundary layer, temperatures can soar to about 500 degrees. And so I stuck my hand there, and um, I thought I felt what I thought was a sh- like an electrical shock in the back of my hand. And so I pulled my hand away, and I looked. I there was no electrical connectors there, and I got back inside. And our engineers, I took my glove off and I had like a burn on the back of my hand. And I mentioned it to my, our engineers and I said, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you that uh, it could, you could have this boundary layer of like superheated, just uh, uh, atomic, you know, off-gassing from the reflective surface. And so it can be up to 500 degrees. And so I thought, well, important safety tip. And so so my job now is to train our new astronauts on our new spacewalkers. And uh, so I tell them these are things we can't simulate of course on earth and so i said the thing that you really is lighting that you can't simulate on earth is how things are lit and and in darkness and also the temperature swings and how to take care of your suit take care of yourself and take care of your spacewalking buddy 
Did you uh, say to your engineer? Did you say that's uh, something you probably should have yeah, forgotten? Like, the... I wish I, I wish I had you know asked that question before. But there, that's the thing about space. There's so many surprises that it's just things that we don't normally think about because it's not things that we live with here on Earth. So it's it's hard to conceive. Uh, some of the questions to ask. <laughs> Our guest uh, during uh, today's program is uh, Colonel Douglas Wheelock, NASA astronaut and commander of the International Space Station. We welcome your questions and comments. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question on WITF's Facebook page. You get that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Talking about walking in space, you, you made seven Spacewalks? Uh, actually, six. Six. six okay, but, but I'm, but I, I won't call it seven because I'm going to go back in a couple of years and I want to do a couple more. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, again, when you're talking about weightlessness inside the space station, that's one thing, but being outside the vehicle and looking around. I mean, my first thought would be, the first, especially the first time you go out, is that tether better be damn strong. <laughs> That's right. Is that the kind of thought you had? It's a, it's a little scary, and it's a, it's a actually very frightening experience where you have to kind of stay within yourself and stay in the present. And um, you're in, you are in your own self-contained spaceship, and so uh, all of your life support is in that backpack that you see them uh, when they're doing their, space, their spacewalks. But visually now you have... Uh, this panorama uh, through this visor now that you feel like you're there and you can see the earth is right there. And so everything you've ever known, every word ever spoken, every person that ever lived is down there and you're not there. And that's a that's a very that that can be a very profound uh, realization where you, you, you can easily have the feeling of uh, isolation of separation, certainly, from uh, everything you've ever known. And so it can be a scary place. It is hard It is hard to focus um, when you're out there. And so we, we teach our astronauts as they're training how to stay in the present, how to overcome failures, how to face their fears, and how to, uh, you know, complete their tasks uh, by staying focused. And so it's it's a difficult task. It can be very difficult. But the majority of your spacewalks were not just uh, <laughs> walks in the park, put it that way. You had repairs to make. Now, you don't have weight. You have this all around you. You have the heat, maybe the cold. Uh, I mean, there are times where I want to fix something and I don't get it done and I call the professional. You don't have that option. <laughs> and you have these big gloves, the spacesuit. How can you do that? It's um, So we, we have very... Our goal when we when we go outside, and, and four of my six spacewalks were emergency repairs uh, to the space station, and uh, you go out with a certain number of goals, and you're working together with a team of hundreds and sometimes thousands of people that are that are rallying around you, uh, providing information to you, and uh, maybe hey, let's try this. If this doesn't work, let's try this. And so, it's a it's a it's an exercise in staying focused. And as the leader outside, you have to you have to really kind of lead the charge and and understanding that as soon as you open that door, I get asked a lot: Is it dangerous to do a spacewalk? Every time you open that hatch, it's danger all around you, and so it's a it's a very very unforgiving um, area. It's a it's a being out in the vacuum of space. Uh, there's zero margin for error. And so, but we're human, so we make mistakes. And so 
we also train with each other and as as an agency at NASA to how to deal with failure and how to deal with mistakes because we're we're human and it's going to come especially if you're endeavoring to do something great anything that you endeavoring to do great in your life you're going to have failure and the greater your goals the more failure you're going to face and so we are in the process you know we always hear this failure is not an option at NASA, which is a, a catchphrase, but the um, but we realize at NASA that failure is going to come, and it's going to come pretty rapidly if we're trying to expand our knowledge in different areas. And so, so we are trained to how to overcome those failures, how to face them as a team, how to look at our you know to have a fine balance between or the appropriate balance between logic and impulse, uh, know know when a consensus decision is necessary or a very decisive decision is necessary necessary uh, to save the day and so so we are just we prepare we prepare we prepare we prepare and so when the moment comes uh, we're comfortable in that I've seen this before I've we've talked about this before and so I know exactly what I'm going to do and so it's uh, it's just an exercise in overcoming failure and difficulties for sure you had mentioned to me before when you're talking about uh, spacewalks that uh it's really not that easy that it could be easy to go floating off into space if you if you just make a mistake. You have to be very careful. You have to be very careful. Make sure everything is tethered. Not only are you just floating there and could go floating away, but your tools could go that way. Uh, pieces of the space station that you're supposed to be holding on to uh, to replace maybe a, a, a component that you're pulling out and putting back in uh, to the space station. Uh, you have to make sure you uh, you tend to these items and so it's uh we we also have a saying it's like slower is faster in space especially when you're out on a spacewalk and it's it's uh it's like a ballet on fingertips when you're out doing a spacewalk it's it's not really a walk per se it's floating in space and you're weightless and everything is weightless, but it still has mass. And F equals MA still holds true in space as well. So you have to be very careful, especially with a large mass, like your body, inside of this heavy suit. You ever lose anything? Um, well, okay, you called me out. But on my first, on my, it was actually my third spacewalk, I had a set of 90-degree uh, uh, needle-nose pliers that I had out outside. I was actually done with my task as on my way back in and the tether broke and it went floating off and uh, so I lost a tool in space and How much that and cost, I, Colonel? And, uh, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, I'll be like I, a member of Congress. Colonel, what I, did that cost? I don't know, but when I got back from my mission, as like, congratulations and as a, as a, a welcome back to earth gift, they gave me a set of needle nose pliers. <laughs> so, so. I'm, uh, you know, I'm jumping around here because there are a lot of questions, but uh, your background is unique for being an astronaut. You graduated from West Point, and uh, you were in the Army. Most of the time, we think of test pilots, we think of Air Force, maybe uh, some Navy Marines, but not very often Army. In fact, weren't you the first commander from, from the Army? I was the first ar uh, commander of the space station, uh, active duty soldier uh, commanding the space station. That's correct. So how did you get interested in flying in space, being with the Army? So I, I, when I was a young child, I uh, just a little boy up in upstate New York, I saw people walking on the moon, and I thought, wow, that's pretty awesome. And my teacher that year 
uh, I was in fourth grade, and my teacher, I remember Christine West was her name, and she said, you know, you could do that as well. And I thought, this lady's nuts. You know, I mean, does she know where she is? She's in this tiny little town. And I just felt so ordinary as a kid, you know, growing up from this ordinary little town in upstate New York. And I thought, surely something like that is not accessible to me. And it was years later, I thought I just was interested in flying. So I started flying. And then once I did that, I was like, well, I really like this flying. I'd like to be a test pilot. So I tried going to test pilot school. And I thought, and I had test pilots around me that were going off to NASA to be astronauts. I thought, I'm going to try that. And you know, the first, like the first day I was selected as an astronaut on August 24th, 1998, on August 27th, Neil Armstrong came to talk to our new class. I'd been an astronaut all of three days, and I had a chance to talk to Neil Armstrong, and I thought, what am, you know, what am I going to say, this ordinary kid? And the first thing he said to me is like, you know, I was from Wapakoneta, Ohio. You know, it's like this tiny little town, just this ordinary kid from an ordinary place. I thought, wait, that's my story too. And uh, the reality I began to realize is like, that's the truth of all of us. We're all just ordinary kids from ordinary places and just trying to prepare our best to meet up with the extraordinary opportunities in our lives. So so what did you ask or what did you talk to Neil Armstrong about? I asked him if I actually, when he was on the surface of the, of the moon, did he get a chance to look back at the earth and what was his feelings? He said, I did it even before I got to the surface. We turned around to uh, fire some retrograde, retrograde rockets to get into orbit around the moon. And I looked back and I saw Earth and he said, biggest, uh, most profound moment is, uh, you know, we left, we left to go to the moon and we turned around when I saw our home and I thought, gosh, how I long to go back home, you know, to the, to the beautiful planet Earth, just this little blue oasis in the middle of this vast empty sea. And so it was very profound to me his words that day. And I, I found a similar thing just up on the space station. It's like, uh, kids always ask me, what's your favorite planet? Is it Pluto? When when Pluto was a planet, of course. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I think Pluto should be still a planet. <laughs> or, or Mars. Or, and I said, you know, my favorite planet is Earth. I just, I, it was the thing I craved the most when I was in space. I just, people ask me, did you crave pizza or a hamburger or something, you know? And I said, you know what I craved? I craved like the sound of rain and the sound of birds singing and the smell of like grass and trees and leaves and all of that was absent in space and i craved it and and i i didn't realize how much i did until they opened that hatch when around the earth and i could smell i could smell the grass and the flowers and the trees and the water and everything it was just just a profound experience. Well, speaking of that, we had uh, a question here from a listener as well. Wanted to know uh, that experience of being, quote, out of body, out of the Earth's envelope. Uh, how has it impacted your philosophy of life or approach to living your life? Oh gosh. Uh, so I'm actually I'm actually a person of faith, and uh, and I I think that um, I think that everyone is. It affects all uh, facets of your life, you know, physiologically, obviously, as you're floating around in space. But also, you can't help to be impacted mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all different areas of your life. And so um, what helped me realize was how fragile we are. And um, it made me quite concerned how angry we can be as humans at each other. And um, 
it made me look at problems in a different way. Uh, I also thought to myself, when I get back home, I'm not wasting one more moment of my life wishing time away or wishing I was somewhere else. Um, I'm going to make the best of my current situation, make the world around me better for myself and for others, and uh, I'm never going to waste another day of my life. You said something to me uh, before we went on the air today that I think that our audience would uh, appreciate as well. Uh, give the example of like uh, a person or a group of people who have a pillow or have pillows and sleeping bags and two-dimensional. Talk about that if you will. So one, one of the things that's very striking when you, uh, when you get off the planet and look at the Earth, and especially the Earth in the balance of deep space and where we are in the cosmos. And I remember Carl Sagan, the old saying from Carl Sagan is like, not only are we insignificant in the cosmos, we are undetectable on this planet and the, and you begin to see the depth in our and I it, it helped me realize that that we that's part of what the beauty that we miss all around us we we tend to live our lives in two dimension we we are concerned just about the little patch of dirt at our feet and maybe just the world around us and our maybe just in our home or just in our workplace or in our town and we don't raise our eyes up and look out at the, what we can become and what we can achieve or what we can achieve together. And so I always use an analogy with with kids, how this was so profound to me when I go into a classroom. I say, let's take, for instance, if your teacher asks you to bring in a pillow and a sleeping bag into class today because we're going to have a sleepover, we're going to have a camp out in the room. The first thing we do as humans, we look down at the floor. It's like there's 30 of us in here. So how in the world, th there's not enough room on this floor to put our sleeping bag. And I'd say to the kids, what if you could turn off gravity and you could look up and now you have, you could sleep on the ceiling, you could sleep on the walls. It helps us to kind of raise our eyes a little bit and, and look at the world around us. And I think as humans, as humans, we lose that perspective of the third dimension because we get concerned about things that are just like in the present, these are our own petty problems. And we don't, we fail to look up and see what we can become, what we can achieve, uh, and w especially what we can achieve together. And so I think we live our lives, and I, I do the same. I'm human, and so I do the same. A lot of times in my life, I've lived in, in two dimension, and I haven't really looked at what I, what I could, what I had the potential to become. And um, I think we, we put limitations on ourselves, and certainly our kids do as well. And when you begin to look at life in that perspective with depth, and I, I shared this morning, uh, Scott, with you as well, that um, one of the things, I took a picture of the constellation Orion, and I sent it back to Earth to our astronomers, and they, of course, they they had the Hubble images, so, so mine was just a photograph. But, uh, but our astronomers said, like, hey, uh, here's something for you to sleep on. Did you know that in those seven main stars of the constellation Orion, three of those stars are actually closer to Earth than they are to each other? Just think about that and think about the depth of our, of, our, of the cosmos and the depth of our of this beautiful night sky uh, that we enjoy. And I thought about that. And I've been thinking about it ever since. I mean, that was six years ago. And I think about it. I, every day of my life, I think about that as I, what am I missing 
by not looking at my life with more depth? Am I missing beauty around us that um, one of the things I love to do on the space station was write poetry? And the very definition of a, of a poet, um, and we're all poets, um, is, is just revealing the beauty that's already around us. That, but because of limitations we put on ourselves, because of the things we're worried about, we don't see that beauty. But the poet reveals that beauty to us that's, that we took for granted. It's like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. What a beautiful, what beautiful words or beautiful um, scenery or something like that. But it was always there. But it takes the poet to bring it to our attention. And um, and so in that respect, we're all poets. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Colonel Douglas Wheelock, NASA astronaut and commander of the International Space Station. Our phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And we have uh, a few questions here. Thomas wants to know, if the space station requires so much maintenance, why not send up one mechanic and two scientists instead of three scientists? (laughs) That's a great question, Thomas. Um, I remember when I first got there, one of my, my third spacewalk, actually, we had a torn solar array back in 2007 and uh, we had to build these cufflinks actually there were we used some cable that we found on the space station and some uh, sheet metal we cut it we wrapped it with tape and we built cufflinks and we went outside and sewed up this solar array and uh, when I got back to earth I called my metal shop teacher in high school and I said like everything I ever needed to know about flying in space I learned in your class and so so it's very true that it's uh, it's great to have uh, some mechanical ability, certainly. I, I found, uh, Thomas, that uh, it took like one per- one person a full day to just to keep the ship sailing. And so it's a harsh environment, and it's, it's bombarded with radiation. It's all these temperature swings, of course, the vacuum of outer space as well, and uh, cosmic uh, radiation and solar radiation that we're protected from and underneath our atmosphere. We're not protected from that uh, out on the space station. And so we're learning and we're making just revolutionary breakthroughs in what we're learning about material science, how to how to build uh, uh, more hardened equipment and uh, software and, 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 and hardware like. And, uh, and so, yes, uh, it's great to have uh, MacGyver on board as well. So I, actually, I, okay. But something you, you just brought up, and I, I know you hear this often. Uh, it wouldn't even have been questioned back during the Apollo program and probably the beginning of the space shuttle. But today, dollars are tight. Government dollars are tight. And there have been people, and I've heard, I know that you've heard them, said, why do we spend this much money on a space program? What do we get out of it? Mm-hmm. What tangible can you tell people that we do get out of it? Well, f- first thing I want to say that um, this space station, your astronauts, they all belong to you, the American taxpayer. We, we haven't forgotten that, and we know that, so we work for you. So if you see something at NASA or on the space station or something that NASA is doing or something maybe that NASA should look at, it's your program. So please uh, contact NASA, and uh, we're in the business of returning investment, return on investment to the taxpayer. Now, what we, we, we're very proud of our spinoff technology. That Now, the why do we go so that... 
the reason we go is to discover the things that we about ourselves, how better take care of ourselves. You know, we talk about this journey, uh, journey to Mars, and um, I mentioned the Hubble Space Telescope earlier. It's like it's not the getting there and planning a boot on the surface of Mars. It's what we're going to discover about technology, engineering, our own health. What we're going to what we're going to discover in the process of getting there. It's the whole journey, all the technology that's going to be spun off from learning about that. It's going it's returned ten dollars for every dollar spent on the space program. Ten dollars is re, is the return on investment uh, for every dollar spent. And of the of our national budget, uh, NASA gets about 0.6 percent of uh, of the f- total federal budget. So less than a penny. Uh, on the on the federal budget for a ten dollar return on ten uh, percent uh, or uh, you know tenfold return on on the dollar spent and also another reminder we don't spend any money in space all of this money is spent here on Earth uh, developing technology uh, making medical breakthroughs doing science to make uh, life better on Earth to to solve these uh, seemingly unsecure and in, in, incurable diseases that plague us. Um, to help our farmers grow better crops, we do all kinds of um, uh, earth analysis for uh, uh, for drainage and crop growth and, and forestation and things like that. And so we we return all this uh, observation and science to our farmers as well. So so all of it it's all about off the earth for the earth is what is what our motto is at NASA for our science. Let's take a phone call from Daphne in Camp Hill. Daphne, you're on the air. Good morning. Um, I'm so happy to hear the astronaut poet <laughs> and his uh, missing the Earth and all the little things that happen here. You know, I keep thinking um, we want to go to Mars and all this uh, exploration to find life somewhere else, and yet we don't appreciate what we have here, and we're slaughtering each other every day. So that's just my philosophical thought. All right. Thank you very much for your call. <laughs> Thank you, Daphne. No, that's that's great. That's uh, my feelings exactly, Daphne. I, 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 um, I have people ask me um, uh, often. It's like we need to go to Mars because we need to colonize Mars. So when we can't live here anymore, it's like as if we're going to take better care of Mars than we took care of Earth. And so, so our philosophy at NASA is like you know if we if we discover some sort of life form. Um, in in the process, that's all 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 great, but it's it's the process of discovery and exploration is what's driving us. And through that process of uh, exploring, we hope to discover better things about ourselves. And I certainly am with you on I. I um, it's it's disheartening to um, to see, uh, especially the beauty of Earth as I look at it from space, and to understand what we're doing to each other. Um, and how we've created this this world, and if we could have a um, if we could have a, a deeper sp- perspective that we're all in this together, I think we would treat each other uh, much more kindly. We have uh, an email here from Linda wants to know um, what is NASA concentrating on, and what is the ultimate goal. So uh, on the space station, we have an orbiting laboratory. You have an orbiting laboratory. We actually have four laboratories on board the space station. We're doing tremendous science for actually for scientists around the world, and we're returning that science uh, to the Earth. We're do- Right now we have over 200 experiments going on board uh, uh, at any one given time uh, on the space station in four different laboratories. 
a lot of it's in medical science. We're trying to we're trying to deliver uh, cures for these things that plague us, um, these diseases and things that seem in, seemingly are in, incurable. We're also trying to help take better care of our planet. Just kind of look at you know, how can we grow better crops? How can we uh, maybe reforest an area that uh, that's been devastated by fire or, or human uh, presence as, as well? And just how to how to uh, better take care of our uh, take care of ourselves and each other. You uh, have a unique position with NASA in that uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, you were a passenger on Soyuz. Um, At one time, the space program was looked at as one of the best examples of cooperation between Russia and the United States. Since then, there has been a lot of tension between the two countries in the last three years or so. But in your present position... As and, and what exactly is that position? Are you an advisor to the Russian space program, or just NASA's representative to the Russian space program? So I'll, I'll be NASA's representative. I leave a week from today. I go back to uh, to Russia to work as the it's the DOR Director of Operations Russia for NASA, and I'm sort of an engineer space flyer diplomat over there and so and you're exactly right it's got to be it's with all the especially with all the tension of the last few years uh with things going on around the world um uh, tensions are high do you notice our, it yes we do notice it over there and uh in this our space our cooperation and collaboration in space has been the jewel in the in the crown of our our relationship with the Russians. Um, just recently, I I, I uh, saw uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin had had uh, uh, talked about our space cooperation as kind of the uh, just a, a gemstone in our in our, our our work to to continually work to be in a better better footing and better relationship with each other as as nations, and so. I think it's been held up as a as a victory in that area, and and it's uh, it's been it's been sort of the guiding light for us as we develop and redevelop our relationship with the Russians. We have about ninety seconds left, Dave. We're going to have to ask you to be very quick, okay? Okay. Um, do you think sometime we're going to laugh at ourselves for sticking a bomb on our backs to get into space? given the different technologies we might find. All right. Thank you very much for your call, and I have to ask you to be kind of quick with that. Good question, Dave, and yes, I believe so. I think one day we'll look back and say, like, wow, we had these big inefficient chemical rockets and now we've got this uh this new system and that's certainly something we're looking for dave and um and i hope to one day look back say like gosh can you imagine we actually used to use it used to ride a thousand foot long uh, flame uh, uh to space and now we get there with this more more efficient method so he's thinking star trek i know absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well we only have about 40 seconds left and i i think that our audience probably enjoyed uh, our conversation a whole lot today thank Thank you very much for being with us, Colonel Willock. Uh, in fact, I wanted to, again, one more time, one of our listeners wanted to know how I could get, get tickets to uh, the event tonight at the Radisson Camp Hill. They can call the Salvation Army Harrisburg or, or uh, find them on their website and call the number and uh, ask for tickets. And they can follow Doug on Twitter at Astro underscore wheels. Okay. And uh, we're going to have, we're going to put a, uh, the pictures, we didn't get a chance to talk about your social media, uh, but uh, some of the pictures that you took in space, we're going to 
put a link on our website, WITF.org, so that our listeners can see some of those just wonderful photographs. But Colonel Willock, it's been an honor to talk to you this morning. Thank you, Scott, and thanks to all the folks of Central Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. It's great to be back. My mom and dad were originally from Scranton, and so I feel at home here coming back. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. And we'll talk to uh, Kelly McGevers on Friday. That will be coming up on Friday.